X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It's Friday, October 23rd. X-Ray is funded by listeners like you. We're grassroots supported. We can only do this because of generous supporters who keep us going live. Pledge line is 503-233-9729. You can also go to xray.fm slash donate. I'll say the number again more slowly, 503-233-9729. You can also go to xray.fm slash donate. X-Ray. Today, back in the day, October 23rd, 4004 B.C., the world was created, at least according to James Usher. Usher was born in Dublin in 1581. He was appointed the primate of all Ireland, the head of the Anglican Church of Ireland between 1625 and 1656. After spending some time in England during the English Civil War, Usher published the Annals of the Old Testament, deduced from the first origins of the world in 1650. This is now referred to as the Usher Chronology. Usher used the Bible, creation myths of other cultures, historical records, astronomic charts, and the Jewish calendar to calculate the exact date and time of creation. In the end, he settled on today, October 23rd, 4004 BC, sometime in the evening. He also mentions a pre-creation event the night before marking the beginning of time. Even within Christianity, Usher's work was highly controversial. In 1890, Princeton professor William Henry Green wrote, the scriptures furnish no data for a chronological computation prior to the life of Abraham. And the Mosaic records do not fix and were not intended to fix the precise date either of the flood or of the creation of the world. Despite theological evidence and plenty of scientific evidence against Usher's chronology, young earth creationism is a widely held belief. In the United States, a 2019 Gallup poll found that 40% of adults believe that God created human beings at some point within the last 10,000 years. And according to some number of them, the earth turns 6,024 today. Happy birthday, Earth. Today, back in the day, October 23rd, 1906, Alberto Santos Dumont conducted the first successful flight of a heavier-than-air aircraft. Born in Brazil in 1873, Santos Dumont was an inventor and an aviation pioneer. He worked extensively on balloon aviation before moving on to heavier-than-air flight. These types of ships are much more difficult to design as they rely either on aerodynamic lift or powered lift to get in the air. Finally, 114 years ago today, Santos Dumont piloted the 14 Bis, also known as Bird of Prey, for a crowd at the Chateau de Bagatelle. And by the way, yes, my French pronunciation, not so great. He flew at a height of about 5 meters, a distance of 60 meters. Santos Dumont believed that aviation would bring about a new era of world peace, and he published his design for free use without ever patenting his many inventions. And that began a long line of publicly interested, non-profit-driven, peaceful aircraft with no involvement in war or commerce. Today, back in the day, October 23, 1832, William Packwood was born. Packwood was an entrepreneur and the youngest member of the Oregon Constitutional Convention back in 1857. He was born near Mount Vernon, Illinois, and moved to Springfield when he was 14. There, he would often run into Abraham Lincoln on his way to work. Packwood first got to Oregon in 1852 after his ship wrecked on a military expedition. He spent the next few years packing, mining, and cattle ranching along the Coquille River. In 1855, he took arms to fight against Native Americans in southeastern Oregon, where three tribes ultimately surrendered to Packwood and his forces. In 1857, Packwood was sent as the delegate of Curry County to the Oregon Constitutional Convention. There he worked on the SEAL Committee and was responsible for the Sea View and the Elk in the state's seal. After that, Packwood served as a judge, a school superintendent, a founder of three towns, a hotel manager, and many other things. He died in 1917 at the age of 85. His great-grandson, Bob Packwood, was the Oregon U.S. Senator from 1969 to 1995. 
We'll start with your quick six news headlines. Alex Zelensky, news editor of the Portland Mercury, is back with an update on local news and an interview with Rose City Justice co-founder Devin Boss and program director Chrissy Wood. X-Ray. First up, it is today's quick six local rundown. Oregon is one of five states where militia activity could pose a threat on election night. Georgia, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Oregon are all listed as having the highest risk of increased militia demonstrations or violence. Voting rights activists say attention put on this issue could reduce voter turnout. A representative from the Campaign Legal Center said, It is designed to maybe keep people from showing up because they fear there might be some activity when in fact it's just chilling commentary. The prediction comes from the Armed Conflict Location Event Data Project, or ACLED, the accolade conclusion is based on which states have recruitment drives or training, where militias have cultivated relations with law enforcement, and where there have been anti-coronavirus lockdown protests. Threats from militia groups have been growing in numbers and specificity. The plan to kidnap Michigan Governor Whitmer over coronavirus restrictions is one example. Hampton Shaw from Militia Watch has this to say, and I'm quoting, There's circulation of rumors of left-wing intervention at the polls or in the election, which has led to individuals and militia groups discussing primarily showing up armed to the polls, like to see if there's anything suspicious or what they deem suspicious. So today, Oregonians, one more reason to thank our lucky stars. We vote by mail. Your daily dose of coronavirus data. As of Thursday, Oregon Health Authority confirmed 331 new cases, two new related deaths, 40,433 cases now total and 635 deaths. The positive test rate is up to 6.4%, up from 6.3% last week, and a total of 28,960 people were tested. The weekly total of new cases is down 4% from last week's total, which was up 18% from the week before. So one step forward after about three or four steps back. The Oregon Health Authority also announced a federal plan to offer free COVID vaccinations to senior care staff and residents. The program will cover anyone living or working in nursing homes, memory care facilities, assisted living, senior foster homes, or people with developmental disabilities. Residents of senior care homes account for 44% of coronavirus-related deaths in Oregon. That's roughly 279 people. It's unclear when a vaccine will be available, but Moderna got a step closer by reaching their trial enrollment threshold of 30,000 participants. Recordings obtained by Street Roots show that Governor Kate Brown made a deal with the Home Builders Association to keep wildfire safety regulations out of legislation. Oregon's population is growing by tens of thousands every year, which means development projects are in the pipeline, primarily in urban wildland interface areas. Audio from a meeting between Portland and Oregon, Oregon Home Builders Association members, showed that wildfire safety regulations are not part of Oregon's growth plan. Leaders in California and Colorado implemented regulations for ignition-safe homes more than a decade ago. Those regulations include building with fire-resistant material and the use of ventilation systems that prevent embers from entering a home. According to ProPublica, in 20 years, Oregon will be at risk for fires that burn more than 12,000 acres. This previous fire season, the state lost more than 1 million acres and an estimated 4,000 homes. Howard Ash, another spokesperson for the Oregon Home Builders Association, said rebuilding a house after it burnt down would be cheaper than building a house to fire safety standards. He didn't go on to mention, though, that fires can spread and then you'll have a burned down house. He estimated the regulations could cost $12,000 more without referencing square footage or other specifics in the cost analysis. Note that local jurisdictions do have the power to implement their own fire safety regulations for structures. Oregonians are turning ballots in early at an unprecedented rate. Statesman Journal reporting, as of Thursday morning, nearly 17% of ballots have been turned in, which is 4% more than this point in 2016. 
Registered voters are also up by 15.5% this year, which makes that 4% difference even more substantial. Just over one quarter of the state's registered Democrats have turned in their ballot already, making them a majority of early voters. That trend mirrors the country, with voters with higher turnout for early voting and vote by mail. Oregon's ballots will start getting counted next week. Portland is going to join Seattle and New York in a lawsuit challenging the Trump administration's threats to cut federal funding. The federal lawsuit aims to halt the withdrawal of the three liberal cities which the president deemed anarchist jurisdictions. On Wednesday, Politico reported the White House intended to cut funding for health programs which screened and treated newborns for HIV and coronavirus. Those cuts also included a $1.8 million grant for a coronavirus treatment center in Multnomah County. The lawsuit reads, and I am quoting, it is evident that one of the general objectives is to push, indeed to compel, the cities to unconstitutionally suppress First Amendment activity based on the content of the speech. Viewed in connection with the president's tweets and other actions, the anarchist memo and designation plainly aim to coerce the cities to suppress only political protests with which he disagrees. End quote. Attorneys have also emphasized that Congress is responsible for budgeting matters and the White House is overreaching. Multnomah County Chair Deborah Kofori says she hopes the November election will make the issue irrelevant. Some good news. Tillamook Creamery is donating $1.6 million to help struggling farms. As part of their All for Farmers campaign, the company is donating the money to American Farmland Trust. Many farmers relied on the restaurant industry for the majority of sales, and they were hit hard as demand fell during the pandemic. CEO Patrick Kreitzor said the company would dedicate 10% of the sales to aid farms. Half of that money would go to protecting farmlands from development. The other half would be used as direct grants. Farm owners can apply for those grants through the American Farmland Trust. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Up next, we have Alex Zielinski, news editor of the Portland Mercury, speaking with Jefferson Smith about Commissioner Joanne Hardesty's response to the allegations against Reverend and the former NAACP leader, E.D. Mondanay. Alex, how are you holding up? Uh, very well. Joanne Hardesty uh, shared a response to the allegations against former, now former, uh, NAACP president, E.D. Mondanay. What did she have to say? Yeah. Um, well, for a little bit of background, uh, we put out a story last week that included several allegations of sexual and physical and psychological abuse uh, against um, former NWCP leader and, and pastor uh, Evie Mondanay, who has been longtime friends with um, Commissioner Joanne Hardesty. Uh, Hardesty was the president of the NWCP before uh, Mondanay, and, and they worked there together. After that point, they also worked on a lot of projects um, around, uh, uh, you know, w- within City Hall when it comes to um, improving the lives for Black Portlanders and just, you know, environmental issues um, and and uh, the earthquake um, kind of conversations around restoring old buildings. Um, so, when this news broke last week for Commissioner Hardesty, she, you know, it, she says it came as uh, it really blindsided her. It, none of this was anything that she was she knew about her good friend. And um, when we first reached out for comment last week, you know, she wanted to wait a bit to just let this again and, and settle in and respond. And, and so yesterday is when she. Um, you know, finally kind of made a public statement about it. And, you know, it's not surprising. She she 
um, she clearly is torn up and, and, you know, called him, called Mondanay a, a brother and a friend, um, but also said that, you know, she said, my gut is always to believe the victim and condemn the alleged abuser. Uh, to the victims, I say, I'm so sorry this happened to you. She she did not, um, you know, step in to defend Mondanay, who has denied all of these claims. She uh, she addressed, like, the the tricky balance of being a longtime friend to someone and not knowing this piece of them and, and trying to reckon with that, but also um, not uh, gaslighting uh, uh, victims in the process. Um, and, and so far, she's the only person, an elected official, who's kind of spoken out about these allegations, um, which, you know, wouldn't be that uncommon, except for the fact that uh, Edie Mondanay has been really involved in a lot of civic issues and city policies and, and programs for a while. And so, um, you know, it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see how his involvement is addressed down the road. Another thing you're reporting on is the city council meeting. It's already starting on this year's current budget and discussing it. Uh, any further changes to police funding? Any other critical issues that got addressed at the city council hearing? Yeah, yeah. So we're approaching um, kind of an annual check-in on this year's budget, which was initially passed in June. Um, and if you remember, it was passed with a lot of, well, a good number of cuts to, to police programs, not a, enough for a lot of folks, but um, it was a start. And I think there was really a discussion at that time um, among city commissioners like Joe and Hardesty and Commissioner Chloe Daly that, hey, these cuts, this is the first of more cuts that are coming down the line in the fall when we check in where we're going to make some more cuts, which is the point that we're in now. Um, and Mayor Ted Wheeler has released his proposed um, kind of adjustments to the budget, and none of them include uh, cuts or reductions to the police bureau. Uh, at the same time, uh, Commissioner Hardesty and Udaley have kind of joined together to propose um, an 18 million reduction in the police bureau further than what it was, you know, the cuts that were made in, in June. Um, a lot of it is cuts to already vacant police um, positions. A, a lot of officers resigned, uh, retired <laughs> over the summer, and they, uh, they, they suggest just, you know, not refilling those positions and, and keeping those um, just getting rid of those those salary jobs, um, and also other kind of uh, other tinkering around the edges, getting rid of the two of the kind of response teams that are the most responsible for the different um, you know violence and response we've seen to protests by police in the past few months. Um, and of course, I mean, it really seems like a non-starter conversation for Mayor Wheeler. I think he. He's, you know, the way he talked about reforms and cuts is very much, you know, in June, he believed he made a, a, a ton of huge changes and cuts and reforms. And even at this point, he's already talking about adding more money and more funds back to the police budget to help with training, to make sure um, that programs that were cut, that, that there are pieces of them that can be still restored, uh, especially around the the of gun violence work um, now that we've seen a, a spike in, in gun violence just in general. Um, 
so it's going to be next week is when when the, the public hearing and the vote um, will go before council around these budget adjustments, um, and then we expect it to be a little bit uh, spicy because of the really differing perspectives on police reform now. Um, you know, uh, going into the the rest of the fiscal year. Any other big budget issues you anticipate? And I say that thinking that as we discuss in the future going forward, knock on wood, the budget, I recognize that often what becomes an issue is what two members of city council disagree upon. There might be a consensus about any number of dumb things we're doing or a consensus avoiding any number of smart things we might do. But any things that you're tracking already that you think we might need to pay attention to? I mean... This isn't off the city council's radar at all, at all, but the amount of funding going towards um, preventing mass evictions uh, once the moratorium on evictions is lifted due to coronavirus, uh, Commissioner Daly and some folks are, are focusing on putting money toward legal defense because um, right now, I mean, in general, whenever when anyone is evicted, they have to really find their own lawyer if they want to defend themselves. And um, already that's a kind of burden that, that is unfairly, you know, borne by, by people who um, are not in a position to, to pay for a lawyer. And so I think putting money towards that, putting money towards more affordable short-term housing, um, I think no one um, doubts that we're headed towards a housing emergency that's, that's much bigger than Portland's already seen. Um, and you're and saying so that, and you're right saying now, that there because there are some promises within the budget for that, but um, it's certainly going to be a conversation to, to watch next week. And you're saying about the housing crisis, and I think what you're referring to is because the, the eviction moratorium is going to end. People are not going to have at this point don't have any extra stimulus money, and and right. you worry there's going to be great or a job of people, yet. yeah, <laughs> or you know, or a job like, to pay the, the rent. Economic crisis related to COVID really hasn't been resolved. Right. Um, I want to say thank you so much for your participation here. And by the way, congratulations again on your X-ray award. Well-deserved. Hey, thanks. Have a good one. Be well. X-ray. Sometimes having the best intentions can backfire. After a series of controversies and call-outs, Rose City Justice, one of the most visible groups organizing local marches this summer, took a step back. Here's co-founder Devin Boss and the program director Chrissy Wood speaking with me Emily Gilliland, about what they have accomplished in their time away, what plans they have for RCJ in the future. Devin and Chrissy, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Good morning. Yeah, thanks for having us. Glad that you are here. Devin, let's start with you. Road City Justice stepped back from organizing large marches around midsummer in response to some criticisms from the activist community. Why did you choose to step back and what have you accomplished in your time away? Uh, we took a step back because, uh, you know, I didn't want to, I didn't want that, uh, that controversy to be a distraction from the actual movement itself. Um, it felt like things had gotten, uh, kind of off the rails mm. and I thought it was important for us to take a step back and, uh, kind of reevaluate, um, our own values and to kind of, you know, restructure and, uh, come back, come back, um, just as strong as, as we started. Um, and we've learned a lot, you know, we've taken equ- equity training classes and we've, you know, um, kind of reevaluated, uh, our, uh, our morals and, 
you know, the our, our group dynamics. And I think that it's very important to kind of take a step back and look at yourself. I mean, we didn't have we didn't have some we didn't have a lot of time mm-hmm. to, to do things like that in the beginning because everything was just so run and gun. We were doing everything by day. And this kind of gave us time to step back and breathe and really decide who we are as an organization and how we wanted to move forward. That's great. And Chrissy, what have you accomplished in that time away? So some restructuring has happened. So what does the structure look like now? Um, So now we're down to seven uh, organizers, and that's the whole team. Um, And then we have some consultants uh, to help us with design and and things like that. And and what it started with was, like, there are six original um, founders, and then it kind of expanded anybody who wanted to help was added to an inner circle and decisions ended up taking a really long time to to consider everyone's perspective and voice and like we wanted everyone to have a voice but when you're trying to make the decisions on the fly if you have to check in with 20 people that's going to take a minute um so we really slimmed down to make ourselves more agile more efficient like devin said we had some training we also learned how to work better as a team and trust each other and so there's a lot a lot of trust going around with um if, if you have this task, I'm going to trust that it gets done in a way that we align with. We also did some deep dives onto what our mission statement is and how we plan to show up in the world and with each other, um, which is something we didn't have for like a code of conduct and uh, uh, bylaws. Um, we've done a lot of internal work as far as um, creating onboarding process and just getting our values written down. Um, all of those things so that we can hold each other accountable. Like m- before, in the, in the beginning, there wasn't really time to sit down and, and do that work. So if someone wasn't showing up in a way that we felt was right, we didn't have really anything to point to to say, like, well, you agreed to show up in this way, um, and and you aren't. Uh, so, so we're pretty stoked to to all have a firm understanding on who we are, what we're after, and how we will behave to get there. Yeah, that sounds like some really important work. And Chris, you want to expand a little bit on those values that y'all decided upon? Yeah. Um, respect, justice, nonviolence. Um, David, help me out. <laughs> this was a recent oh. one. We haven't put it up yet. Um, <laughs> Respect, justice, non-violence, prosperity. There's one more. I did it. Oh, nice. Excellent. Excellent. So, Devin, with with those values guiding you all, what does police interaction look like moving forward? Well, you know, uh, a, it's a complicated process with uh, what's still going on and with uh, you know the political field that we're in. I mean, uh, you know, we'll put, uh, you know, the election time is right around the corner, um, and so you know, a lot of this has been reactionary. So I'm I'm looking forward to all of us just working towards changing policy um, and continuing to reduce the police Portland budget in order to create programs that embolden the community and give us more power and allow us to have more community oversight, which is why 
Um, Rose City Justice is in full su- support of 26-217, which uh, will kind of allow the community to engage with the police in a, in a way that is um, has a little bit more leverage, has a little bit more teeth. So for me, I think that that's one of the most important points of engagement is um, the community oversight committee, mm-hmm. um, because that's going to be able to hold the police accountable in a way that we really never have. Yeah. And Devin, will you all be endorsing specific candidates or have you endorsed specific candidates in, in local elections? Uh, we have not. Um, not to say that we won't in the future, but yeah. um, we have we have not. Okay, but you're clear on the police oversight bill. You are in support of of that measure. Oh, 100%. Yeah, okay. And um, Chrissy, there's been some effort focused on fundraising. What are you all fundraising for? Um, We have some, uh, we'd like to reimburse some of the employees, or not employees, but volunteers who paid for their out-of-pocket trips to D.C. Mm -hmm. um, in support of the team. And while we were there, we did work for Rose City Justice, meeting with other organizers, meeting with people running for office, um, victims of police violence, et cetera. Uh, and so there, there's things like that, as well as like putting on new programs. So um, Devin is working to build some content, and he's he's uh, actually got a, a strong film background and is, is really making some beautiful stories that are being told from a black perspective through black camera people um, and black editing to tell the story of black people um, more truthfully mm. and more impactfully. Um, and so, and then as well as that, we'd like to just help the community um, in ways that we can do that include dollars. Um, mm. And it kind of takes money to run some operations sometimes, like having email addresses, um, you know, getting post-it notes, um, operating costs. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Thanks for that. Devin, you want to talk more about some of your your film programming ideas? Yeah, well, you know, I think in I think in uh the recent weeks, um what started off as a black-led movement mm-hmm. um was kind of co-opted um and has uh since uh, has adopted a a very white voice and I really just want to reestablish the narrative uh through a black lens. I think that's uh, extremely important, especially in a city with as few black people as Portland has. It is easy for the black voice to get to get lost and muddled uh, in the confusion of what's going on right now. So I think that it's important to tap into the power of narrative because narrative has, you know, it's more potent than most things in this world. And in the, in it's in the way that it can affect and influence people. Um, so, you know, you want to really empower people and give them the opportunity to uh, have control and power of their own narrative. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the, the difference between owning a car and borrowing a car. You know, you, you really want to be able to feel good and feel like you can stand on your own two feet. Um, and I think that black people haven't really had that, especially in Portland. And so, you know, I really want I want to I at, at some point build my own uh, black production uh, company. Um, and studio, um, you know, you really, I really want to get get uh, more people that look like me and Chrissy into those kinds of positions where they feel like they have another option, they have choices, and they have uh, a valuable voice. Um, and so, you know, uh, moving forward, uh, we're going to start doing educationals uh, weekly, and just kind of telling stories uh, by Black people uh, for Black people. Um, so, yeah, look uh, look forward to that. So, we're going to be working on you know police reform. Um, prison reform, school reform, 
um, and also working on telling the stories of people who haven't um, up to this moment really had an opportunity to stand on a platform like ours mm-hmm. um, and give them more give them more visibility. Yeah. Devin, why, why do you think the, the narrative, the focus on black voices has shifted? Why is it now more focused on white voices in, in Portland? Uh, you know, that's, that's something that's hard for me to say. I can't necessarily speak for, <laughs> speak to that yeah. as accurately as maybe somebody would want to. But, I mean, a lack of overall engagement, I think, would probably be one of my p- things that I'd point to as far as, you know, everything got really focused. As far as the media, everything got really focused on, you know, the anarchy um, and the chaos. Um, and nobody really gave focus to all the black organizations that were doing things during the daytime mm-hmm. that were doing things and, and really actually educating, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the focus went towards the nighttime activities of which, you know, a lot of black people weren't a part of, you know? Uh, and so that stage was set and, you know, that's kind of, that's kind of how it was. I mean, the me- the media was, uh, was seriously portraying Portland as strictly an anarchist, chaotic, nonsensical place, which, you know, has not really ever been the case. I mean, there's always been peaceful protests um, in the wake of all of this nonsense. There's, uh, there's always been peaceful protests. Um, and, 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 and activities at the JC uh, are just as reactionary as uh, Rose City Justice's uh, activities um, in the beginning, you know, the, the federal occupation and, and what, what have you. But it's, it's, all, ta- it's, all, it's all a tactic. And so, you know, Trump and, you know, whoever the powers that be, you know, they only they only show uh, one 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 view. And, you know, that that just goes back to the power of narrative. We need we need more honest reporting on what's actually going on on a day to day um, around the clock, not just in those small hours on that small block. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, and as y'all look forward, I'm I'm hearing advocacy. I'm hearing programming. Chrissy, where do protests fit into the future of Rose City Justice? Um, protests are important. Uh, they they really were impactful in affecting special sessions and like voting practices mm-hmm. of our elected officials. And like we were able to pass things that we hadn't been able to pass uh, in the past because mm-hmm. we were loud. Um, and I think that it. It is a useful tool, and we as Rose City Justice would like to, um, we do plan to go back to doing marches. It won't be on a daily basis like we started, um, because that's an insane amount of work, and it's not sustainable to get that many people out all the the time. Mm -hmm. Um, So we would like to do uh, at least monthly marches and have them be around uh, a call to action. And as always, we'll have some solid programming with great guest speakers to inform people about things that they maybe don't know about. Like and still, um, Juice just put on a march down to Vanport and, and there's so many people in the city who don't know the racist history of the city or how the government works with the oldest, with the, only major city with this form of government in the country Mm -hmm. and like i don't even understand the implications of that and so having someone come to educate the people like most people don't know that um is is, i think is super impactful and marching is a great way to do that yeah absolutely um 
as you all look forward to, I'm, I'm hearing some advocacy around the police accountability bill. Um, Devin, anything else that, that you all will be, you talked about advocacy around policing, around prisons, around schools. Do you want to give us some more context or more, more um, conversation about those three areas? Uh, they definitely are all very important, um, and they all have layers of their own. Right. As far as advocacy, though, we are, uh, you know, I've, I've been focusing heavily on the, the Police Accountability Act, which is, you know, right around the corner. Um, as far as um, mm-hmm. anything else, as far as throwing support behind it, we're not, we're not, uh, we're not doing much as far as, as far as throwing our support behind a, a, a whole bunch of things. Right now, I think our, our, our primary focus um is our weekly educational and um you know making sure that people get out there to vote uh on what matters and yeah ballot 26 to uh, 217. got it got it and chrissy how can folks best support your work right now um you can follow us on instagram um show up when when we invite you to things We, we often are um, repping other events that people are putting on in the mm-hmm. city that would be really strongly support. So, so be seen, be heard, um, vote. Make sure that your votes are counted. Get your friends to vote uh, and buy shirts so we can put on some great events for you. I love um, And we want to, we think it's important to, to pay black people, like pay black mm-hmm. artists when someone comes to DJ, when someone does a piece of art, when someone does a performance, when someone comes and speaks and educates people. We want to um, start a trend and like continue on uh, this, this elevation and prosperity of black people. And I think that so often we expect uh, black people to do this work and to come be guest speakers for free because mm-hmm. like they're passionate about it and they want to do it. Um, but uh, how we elevate black people is when, is by paying them and <laughs> like giving them the equity and, and understanding that like when if the role were reversed like we 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 pay experts uh, of other races often um, and we need to start paying our BIPOC folks as well and in order to do that we need some dollars. Yeah, absolutely. Devin, what's your election night plans look like? Election night plans? Yes. <laughs> Uh, I will be sitting by, uh, waiting waiting for results at my house, uh, sitting comfortably and safe, and uh, awaiting the results. Okay, Chrissy, how about you? How are you going to spend election night? Um, I I think I might uh, go on a road trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, out of, out of the country, out of the city. No, just out of the state, maybe. Okay. So get my ballot in early, and then. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm nervous. I'm yeah. excited. It's, it's, it's everything. Yeah. Devin, how are you feeling about election night? Uh, I am. I'm a little, I'm a little, a little anxious, but uh, I'm, I'm mainly excited to, to, to see the results. Um, yeah, honestly, it's just been, it's a, this, this has been a, a long year, a year that feels worth five. Um, and yeah. so I think that the, uh, uh, the outcome on this one is obviously everybody's a little bit more on pins and needles and uh, kind of sitting on the edge of the seat, uh, kind of waiting to see what the results are. So I kind of, I kind of sympathize with that, and I kind of, I just, I just, I, I kind of just want it to happen. <laughs> yeah, get move on to the, whatever the next chapter looks like. Yeah. Um, Chrissy, how do folks find y'all on Instagram? 
Um, we are at Road City Justice um, on Instagram. Excellent. And Devin, if folks want to contribute to Rose City Justice, how do they do that if they want to give a donation? Um, I believe all of our all of our handles on um, on the on cash sharing apps is Rose City Justice, okay. except for Cash App, which I believe is Rose City Justice Six. Okay. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, Devin and Christy, Christy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Yeah. Thank you for having us. X-Ray. Thanks to Alex, Chrissy, and Devin for joining The Local. Big thanks to production team executive editor Will Romy. Supporting editors and writers Miranda Selinger, Jonathan Covington-Brem, Sophie Mallon, Brian Miller, Julie Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Jaleesa Ringering, writer Sherwood, and Sam Smartyasa. For co-executive producer Emily Gilliland, I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks to the original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Business Journal, KGW, Limit Week, COIN, Pamplin Media, OPDK2, the Oregonian Statesman Journal, and News Partners, Portland Mercury, and Street Roots. Thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Local supporters, we are hosting a local focus group in the coming weeks. Want to give feedback on the last 150 episodes and give some input for the next 150? Send us an email, pretty please, at thelocal at xray.fm. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review. And thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-ray. 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 X-ray.